Witch of the Demon Seas, Chapter 1 Crowman, the Conqueror, the Lassocrat of Ikeror, stood watching his guards bring up the captured pirates. He was a huge man, his hair and square-cut beard, jet black despite middle age, the strength of his warlike youth still in his powerful limbs. He wore a plain white tunic and purple-trimmed cloak. The only sign of kingship was the golden chaplet on his head and the signet ring on one finger. In the gaudy crowd of slender, chattering courtiers, he stood out with a brutal contrast. So they finally captured him, he rumbled. So we're finally rid of Curran and his seagoing bandits. Maybe now the land will have some peace. What will you do with them, sire? asked Shorzan the saucer. Crowman shrugged heavy shoulders. I don't know. Pirates are usually fed to the Erinyes at the games, I suppose, but Corrin deserves something special. Public torture, perhaps, sire. It could be stretched over many days. No, you fool. Corrin was the bravest enemy Akira ever had. He deserves an honorable death and a decent tomb. Not that it matters much, but... Shorzan exchanged a glance with Chryseus, then looked back toward the approaching procession. The city Taurus was built around a semicircular bay, a huge expanse of clear green water on whose surface floated ships from halfway round the world, the greatest harbor for none knew how many empty sea leagues, capital of Akira, which, with its trade and its empire of entire archipelagos, was the mightiest of the Thalassocracy. Beyond the fortified sea walls at the end of the bay, the ocean swelled mightily to the clouded horizon, gray and green and amber. Within, the hulls and sails of ships were a bright confusion up to the stone docks. The land ran upward from the bay, and Taurus was built on the hills, a tangle of streets between houses that ranged from the clay huts of the poor to the marble villas of the great. Beyond the city walls on the landward side, the island of Akira lifted still more steeply, a gaunt, rocky country with a few scattered farms and herds. Her power came all from the sea. A broad, straight road lined with sphinxes ran straight from the harbor up to the palace, which stood on the highest hill in the city. At its end, wide marble stairs lifted toward the fragrant imperial gardens in which the court stood. Folk swarmed about the street, mobs straining to see the soldiers as they led their captives toward the palace. The word that Koran of Conahar, the most dangerous of the pirates, had finally been taken, had driven merchants to ecstasy, and brought insurance rates tumbling down. There was laughter in the throng, jeers for the prisoners, shouts for the king. Not entirely so, however. Most of the crowd were, of course, Akarans, a slim, dark-haired folk, clad generally in a light tunic and sandals, proud of their ancient might and culture. They were loudest in shouting at the robbers, but there were others who stood silent and glum-faced, not daring to voice their thoughts, but making them plain enough. Tall, fair men from Conoher itself, galled by a Karen rule, fur-clad barbarians from Nariki, blue-skinned savages from Olotu, with a high professional regard for their fellow pirate, slaves from a hundred islands who had not ceased dreaming of home, 
and remembered that Corin had been in the habit of freeing slaves when he captured a ship or a town. Others might be neutral, coming from too far away to care, for Corin had only attacked the Karen galleys, the black men from Misty Orzaban, the copper-coloured Chilatsis, the yellow wizards from mysterious Yangnu. The soldiers marched their prisoners rapidly up the street. They were mercenaries, blue Amlotuans, in the shining corslets, greaves and helmets of the Akeran forces, armed with the short sword and square shield of Akeara, as well as the long halberds, which were their special weapon. When the mob came too close, they swung the butts out, with bone-snapping force. The captive pirates were mostly from Conaher, though there were a number of other lands represented. They stumbled wearily along, clad in a few rags, weighted down hand and foot by their chains. Only one of them, the man in the lead, walked erect, but he strode along with the arrogance of a conqueror. It must be Corin himself, there in the front of them, said Chryseus. It is, nodded Shorzan. They moved forward for a better look. Imperceptibly the court shrank from them. Croman's advisor and daughter were feared in Tauros. Shorzan was tall and lean and dry, as if the heaven-fire beyond the eternal clouds had fallen on him and seared all moisture out of the gaunt body. He had the noble features of the old Achaean aristocracy, but his eyes were dark and sunken and smouldering with strange fires. Even in the warmth of midday, he wore a black robe falling to his feet, and his white beard streamed over it. Folk knew that he had learned sorcery in Hyang Nu, and it was whispered that for all Croman's brawling strength, it was Shorzan who really dominated the realm. Croman had married Shorzan's daughter. None knew who her mother had been, though it was thought she was a witch from Hyang Nu. She had not lived long after giving birth to Chryseus, whose grandfather thus came to have much of her upbringing in his hands. Rumor had it that she was as much a witch as he a warlock. Certainly, she could be cruel and ungovernable, but she had a strange, dark beauty over her that haunted men. There were more who would die for her than one could readily count, and it was said had died after a night or two. She was tall and lithe, with night-black hair that streamed to her waist when unbound. Her eyes were huge and dark in a face of coldly chiseled loveliness, and the full red mouth denied the austere, goddess-like fineness of her countenance. Today she had not affected the heavy gold and jewels of the court. A white robe hung in dazzling folds about her, and there might as well not have been another woman present. The prisoners came through the palace gates, which clashed shut behind them. Up the stairs they went, and into the fragrance of green trees and bushes, blooming plants and leaping fountains that was the garden. There they halted, and the court buzzed about them like flies around a dead animal. Croman stepped up to Corin. Greeting, he said, and there was no mockery in his voice. Greeting, replied the pirate in the same even tones. They measured each other, the look of two strong men who understood what they were about. Corin was as big as Croman, a fair-skinned giant of a man in chains and rags. Weather-bleached yellow hair hung to his shoulders, from a haughtily lifted head, and his fire-blue eyes were unwavering on the king's. His face was lean, long-jawed, curved-nosed, 
hardened by bitterness and suffering, and desperate, unending battle. The chained Arigné could not have looked more fiercely on his captors. It's taken a long time to catch you, Corin, said Quoman. You've led us on a merry chase. Once I almost had the pleasure of meeting you myself. It was when you raided Serapolis, remember? I happened to be there and gave chase in one of the war galleys. But we never did catch you. One of the ships did. Corin's voice was strangely soft for so big a man. It didn't come back, as you may recall. How did they finally catch you? asked Quoman. Corin shrugged and the chains about his wrists rattled. You already know as much as I care to talk about, he said wearily. We sailed into Iliamnus Bay and found a whole fleet waiting for us. Someone must finally have spied out our stronghold. Coman nodded and Corin shrugged a shoulder. They blocked off our retreat, so we just fought till everyone was dead or captured. These half-hundred men are all who live. Unfortunately, I was knocked out during the battle and woke up to find myself a prisoner. Otherwise, his blue gaze raked the court with a lashing contempt. I could be peacefully feeding fish now, instead of your witless fish eyes. I won't drag out the business for you, Corin, said Cormen. Your men will have to be given to the games, of course, but you can be decently and privately beheaded. Thanks, said the pirate. But I'll stay with my men. Quoman stared at him in puzzlement. But why did you ever do it? he said finally. With your strength and skill and cunning you could have gone far in Akewa. We take mercenaries from conquered provinces, you know. You could have gotten Akewan citizenship in time. I was a prince of Conaher, said Corin slowly. I saw my land invaded, and my folk taken off as slaves. I saw my brothers hacked down at the Battle of Lear, my sister taken as concubine by your admiral, my father hanged, my mother burned alive when they fired the old castle. They offered me amnesty because I was young, and they wanted a figurehead, so I swore an oath of fealty to Akira and broke it the first chance I got. It was the only oath I ever broke, and still I am proud of it. I sailed with pirates until I was big enough to master my own ships. That is enough of an answer. It may be, said Croman slowly. You realize, of course, that the conquest of Conaher took place before I came to the throne, and that I certainly couldn't negate it. In view of the Thalassocrat's duty to his country, I had to punish its incessant rebelliousness. I don't hold anything against you yourself, Croman said Corin with a tired smile. But I give my soul to the netherfires for the chance to pull your damned palace down around your ears. I'm sorry it has to end this way, said the king. You're a brave man. I'd like to drain many beakers of wine with you on the other side of death. He signed to the guards. Take him away. One moment, sire, said Shorzan. Is it your intention to lock all these pirates in the same dungeon cell? Why, I suppose so. Why not? I do not trust their captain. Chained and imprisoned, he is still a menace. I think he has certain magical techniques. That's a lie, spat Corin. I never needed your stinking woman's tricks to flatten the likes of a Akira. I would not leave him with his men, advised Shurzan imperturbably. 
Best he be given his own cell, alone. I know a place. Well, let it be so. Crowman waved a hand in dismissal. As Shorzan turned to lead the guards off, he traded a long glance with Chryseus. Her eyes remained hooded as she looked after the departing captives. Chapter 2 The cell was no longer than a man's height, a dripping cave hewed after the rock under the palace foundations. Corrin crouched on the streaming floor in utter darkness. The chains which they had locked to ringbolts on the wall clashed when he stirred. And this was how it ended, he thought bitterly. The wild career of the exiled conqueror, the heave and surge of ships under the running waves, the laughter of comrades and the clamor of swords and the thrum of wind in the rigging had come to this. One man hunched in a loneliness and darkness like a colder womb, waiting in timeless murk for the day when they would drag him out to be torn by beasts for the amusement of fools. They fed him at intervals, a slave bringing a bowl of prison swill, while a spear-armed guard stood well out of reach and watched. Otherwise he was alone. He could not even hear the voices of other captives. There was only the slow dripping of water and the harsh tones of iron links. The cell must lie below even the regular dungeons, far down in the very bowels of the island. Vague images floated across his mind. The high cliffs about Elantis Bay, the great flowers blooming with sullen fires in the jungle beyond the beach, the slim black corsair galleys at anchor. He remembered the open sky, the eternally clouded sky under which blew the long wet wind, out of which spilled rain and lightning, and grew the eerie blue of dusk. He had often wondered what lay beyond those upper clouds. Now and then, he remembered, one could see the vague disk of the heaven fire, and he had heard of times when incredibly violent storms opened a brief rift in the high cloud layers to let through a shaft of searing brilliance, at whose touch water boiled and the earth burst into flame. It made him think of the speculations of Conaher's philosophers, that the world was really a globe around which the heaven fire swung, bringing day and night. Some had gone so far as to imagine that it was the world which did the moving, that the heaven fire was a ball of flame in the middle of creation about which all other things revolved. But Conaher was in chains now. He remembered its folk bowed to the will of Akira's greedy proconsuls, its art and philosophy, the idle playthings of the conquerors. The younger generation was growing up with an idea that it might be best to yield to become absorbed into the thalassocracy, and so eventually gain equal status with the Acheron. But Corin could not forget the great flames flapping against a wind-torn night sky, the struggling forms at rope's ends swaying from trees, the long lines of chained people stumbling hopelessly to the slave galleys under Acheron lashes. Perhaps he had carried the grudge too long, no by Brenech Banor, there had been a family which was no longer. That was grudge enough for a lifetime. The lifetime, he thought sardonically, which wouldn't be very much protracted now. He sighed wearily in the stinking gloom of the cell. There were too many memories crowding in. The outlaw years had been hard and desperate, but they'd been good ones, too. There had been song and laughter and comradeship 
and gigantic deeds over an endless waste of waters, the long blue hush of twilight, the soft black nights, the grey days with the sea running grey and green and gold under squalls of rain, the storms roaring and raging, the eager leap of a ship, frenzy of battle at the taking of town or galley, death so close one could almost hear the beat of black wings, orgy of loot and vengeance, the pirate town, grass huts under jungle trees, stuffed with treasure, full of brawling body life, the scar-faced swaggering men, and the lusty insolent women, ruddy firelight hammering back the night while the surf thundered endlessly along the beach. Well, all things came to a close, and while he would have wished a different sort of death for himself, he didn't have long to wait in this misery. Stirred, far down the narrow corridor, and he caught the flickering glow of a torch. Scowling, he stood up, stooped under the low ceiling. Who in all the hells was this? It was too soon for feeding, unless his time sense had gone completely awry, and he didn't think the games could have been prepared in the few days since his arrival. They came up to the entrance of the cell and stood looking in by the guttering red torchlight. A snarl twisted Corin's lips. Shorazon and Chryseus. Of all the scum of Akira, he growled. I had to be inflicted with you. There is no time for insolence, said the sorcerer coldly. He lifted the torch higher. The red light threw his face into blood-splashed shadow. His eyes were pits of darkness in which smouldered two embers. His black robe blended with the surrounding shadow. His face and hands seemed to float disembodied in the dank air. Corrin's eyes travelled to Chryseis, and in spite of the hate that burned in him, he had to admit she was perhaps the loveliest woman he had ever seen. Tall and slim and lithe, moving with the soundless grace of a Sanduvian pharax, the dark hair sheening down past the chill-sculptured beauty of her marble-white face. She returned his blue stare with eyes of dark flame. She was dressed as if for action, a brief tunic that left arms and legs bare, a short black cloak and high buskins, but jewels still blazed at throat and wrists. Behind her padded a lean shadow at sight of which Corrin stiffened. He had heard of Chrysis's tame Erinye. Folk said the devil beast had found a harder heart in the witch's breast and yielded to her. Some said less mentionable thing. The slitted green eyes flared at Corrin, and the cruel muzzle opened in a fanged yawn. Back, Perius, said Chrysis evenly. Her voice was low and sweet, almost a caress. It seemed strange that such a voice had spoken the rituals of black sorcery and ordered the flaying alive of a thousand helpless Isserian prisoners and counseled some of the darkest intrigues in Akeva's bloody history. She said to Corin, This is a fine end for all your noble thoughts, man of Conor. At least, he answered, you credit me with having had them, which is more than I'd say for you. The red lips curved in a cynical smile. Human purposes have a habit of ending this way. The mighty warrior, the scourge of the seas, ends in a foul prison cell, waiting for an unimaginative death. The old epics lied, didn't they? Life isn't quite the glorious adventure that fools think it is. It could be, if it weren't for your sword, wearily. Go away, won't you? 
If you won't even let me talk with my old comrades, you can at least spare me your own company. We are here with a definite purpose, said Shorzan. We offer you life, freedom, and the liberation of Conaher. He shook his tiny head. It isn't even funny. No, no, I mean it, said Chryseus earnestly. Shorzan had you put in here alone, not out of malice, but simply to make this private talk possible. You can help us with a project so immeasurably greater than your petty quarrels that anything you ask in return will be as nothing, and you are the one man who can do so. I tell you this so that, realizing you have some kind of bargaining position, you will meet us as equal to equal, not as prisoner to captor. If you agree to aid us, you will be released this instant. With a sudden flame within him, Corrin tartened his huge body. O gods, O almighty gods beyond the clouds, if it were true, his voice shook. What do you want? Your help in a desperate venture, said Chryseus. I tell you frankly that we may well all die in it, but at least you will die as a free man, and if we succeed, all the world may be ours. What is it? he asked hoarsely. I cannot tell you everything now, said Chosan, but the story has long been current that you once sailed to the lairs of the Xanthi, the sea demons, and returned alive. Is it true? Aye, Corin stiffened, with sudden alarm trembling in his nerves. Ah, by great good luck I came back, but there were not a race of humans to traffic with. I think the powers I can summon will match theirs, said Shorzan. We want you to guide us to their dwellings and teach us the language on the way, as well as whatever else you know about them. When we return, you may go where you choose, and if we get their help, we will be able to set Conaher free soon afterward. Corin shook his head. It's nothing good that you plan, he said slowly. No one would approach the Xanthi for any good purpose. You did, didn't you? chuckled the wizard dryly. If you want the truth... We are after their help in seizing the government of Akira, as well as certain knowledge they have. If you succeeded, argued Corrin stubbornly, why should you then let Conaher go? Because power over Akira is only a step to something too far beyond the petty goals of empire for you to imagine, said Chorzan bleakly. You must decide now, man. If you refuse, you die. Chryseus moved one slim hand and the arinade padded forward on razor-clawed feet. The leathery wings were folded back against the long black body. The barbed tail lashed hungrily, and a snarl vibrated in the lean throat. If you say no, came the woman's sweet voice, Perius will rip your guts out. That will at least afford us an amusing spectacle for our trouble. Then she smiled, the dazzling smile which had driven men to their doom ere this. But if you say yes, he whispered, a destiny waits for you that kings would envy. You are a strong man, Corin. I like strong men. The corsair looked into the warm, dark light of her eyes and back to the icy glare of the devil beast. No unarmed man had ever survived the onslaught of an Arinier, and he was chained. At thought of returning to the dark home of the Xanthi, he shuddered. But life was still wondrous sweet and once free to move about, he might still have some chance of escape, or even of overpowering them. Or, who knew? He wondered with a brief giddiness, 
if the dark witch before him could be as evil as her enemies said. Strong and ruthless, yes, but so was he. When he learned the full truth about her soaring plans, he might even decide they were right. In any case, to live, to die if he must, under the sky. I'll go, he said hoarsely. I'll go with you. The low, exultant laughter of Chrysius sang in the flare-lit gloom. Shazan came up and took a key from his belt. For a bare moment the thought of snapping that skinny neck raged through Corin's mind. The magician smiled grimly. Don't try it, he said, as a small proof of what we can do. Suddenly he was not there. It was a monster from the jungles of Ulotu, standing in the cell with Corin, a scaled beast that hissed at him with grinning jaws and spewed poison on the floor. Sorcery! Corin shrank back, a chill of fear striking even his steely heart. Shazon resumed human shape and wordlessly unlocked the chains. They fell away and Corin stumbled out into the corridor. The Irinye snarled and slipped closer. Chryseus laid a hand on the beast's head, checking that gliding rush as if with a leash, her smile and the faint sweet scent of her hair dizzying. Come, she said. One hand slipped between his own fingers, and the cruel touch seemed to burn him. Shazan led the way, down a long sloping tunnel, where only the streaming torch flames had life. Their footsteps echoed hollowly in the wet black length of it. We go at once, he said. When Croman learns of your escape, all Taurus will be after us. But it will be too late, then. We sail swiftly tonight. Sail? Whither? What are my men? asked Corrin. They're lost, I'm afraid, unless Croman spares them until we get back, said Chrysius. But we saved you. I'm glad of that. A faint smell of fresh, salty air blew up the tunnel. It must open on the sea, thought Corrin. He wondered how many passages riddled the depth under Taurus. They came out finally on a narrow beach under the looming western cliffs. The precipices climbed into the utter dark of night, reaching into the unseen sky. Before them lay open sea, swirling with phosphorescence. Corrin drew deep lungfuls of air, salt and seaweed and wet wild wind, sand under his feet, sky overhead, a woman beside him. By the gods, it was good to be alive. A galley was moored against a tiny pier. By the light of bobbing torches, Corrin's mariner's eyes surveyed her. She was built along the same lines as his own ship, a lean black vessel with one square sail, open-decked save at stem and stern, rowers' benches lining the sides with a catwalk running between. There would be quarters for the men under the poop and forecastle decks, supplies in the hold beneath. The cabin was erected near the waist, apparently for officers, and there was a ballista mounted in the bows, otherwise no superstructure. A carved sea monster reared up for figurehead, and the stern post curved back to make its tail. He read the name on the bows, Brazair. Strange that that darker vessel should bear a girl's name. About a fifty-man capacity, he judged, and she would be fast. The crew were getting aboard. They must have come down the cliffs along some narrow trail. They were all Umlotuan blues, he noticed, a cutthroat gang if ever he saw one, but silent and well-disciplined. It was shrewd to take only the mercenary warriors along, they had no patriotic interest in what happened to Akewa 
and their reckless courage was legendary. A burly one-eyed officer came up and saluted. All set, sir, he reported. Good, nodded Shorzan. Captain Imazu, this is our guide, Captain Curran. The waiter, eh? Imazu chuckled and shook hands in the manner of the barbarians. Well, we could hardly have a better one, I'm sure. Glad to know you, Curran. The pirate murmured polite phrases, but he decided that Imazu was a likable chap and wondered what had led him to take service under anyone with Shorzan's reputation. They went aboard. The Sea of Demons lies due north, said Shorzan. Is that the way to sail? For the time being, nodded Korn. When we get closer, I'll be able to tell you more exactly. And you may as well wash and rest, said Chryseus. You need both. Her smile was soft in the flickering red light. Korn entered the cabin. It was divided into three compartments. Apparently Amazu slept with his men, or perhaps on deck as many men preferred. His own tiny room was clean, sparsely furnished with a bunk and a washbowl. He cleaned himself eagerly and put on the fresh tunic laid out for him. When he came back on deck, the ship was already under way. A strong south wind was blowing, filling the dark sail, and the brazier surged forward under its thrust. The phosphorescence shone around her hull and out on the rolling waters. Behind, the land faded into the night. It certainly been given no chance to escape, he thought. Barring miracles, he had to go through with it now, at least until he reached the Sea of Demons, after which anything might happen. He shivered a little, wondering darkly whether he had done right, wondering what their mission was and what the world's fate was to be as a result of it. Chryseus slipped quietly up to stand beside him. The Arinier crouched down nearby, his baleful eyes never leaving the man. Outward bound, she said, and laughter was gay in her voice. He said nothing, but stared ahead into the night. You'd better sleep, Corin, she said. You're tired now, and you'll need all your strength later. She laid a hand on his arm and laughed aloud. It will be an interesting voyage, to say the least. Rather, he thought with wry humor. It occurred to him that the ship might even have its pleasant aspects. Good night, Corin, she said, and left him. Presently, he went back to his room. Sleep was long in coming and uneasy when it did arrive.